week of March 14th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 533, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. How are you doing, Michael? Uh, it's rainy. It's wet. Are you, are and you tired? It's late. It's, it's late on a Monday. What happens today? What, what, what happens today? Well, well, here's the thing. This is the first time that the Grammys have been held within 24 hours of the Academy <sighs> Award nominations being announced. And every entertainment journalist I know is exhausted. Well, we had the BAFTAs. Within this week, we've had the BAFTAs, the ACE nominations, cinematographer, uh, set designer, uh, 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 the Berlin Film Festival happened. You watch movies at Berlin. And then I'm up last night for three and a half, three hours and 45 minutes watching the Grammys. Very exciting. So we are we got awards on the brain, don't we? What are we talking about this week? It must be awards. Yes, that's right. This week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got awards news for you. Okay, everyone has got awards news for you. So we won't bore you by repeating all the details and all the winners. So go look at those. Go look all up all those nominees and award winners and then come back. You can, you can, you know, hear the analysis here. We will tell you what they all mean. We've got the BAFTAs, the Césars from France, the editing and cinematography and set design and, for, you know, awards from those guilds, as well as the Director's Guild Award nominations. And, oh, oh, by the way, Michael, we do have Oscar nominations. We could talk about those, too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, since streamers are dominating all the award news, we've also got an update on streaming. We'll tell you which TV properties are the most popular and which streamers are making the most interesting deals. On Inside Baseball, this is very exciting for me. We're joined by David Wilde, a longtime friend of the show who is an Emmy-nominated writer and producer. He just spent weeks preparing for the Grammys as the lead writer of the telecast, and he'll give us the inside dirt on how they pulled off a socially distanced celebration of music. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right, and we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes, and the number one movie is Bloodshot, $22 million worldwide on its opening weekend. That, of course, is the movie starring Vin Diesel. It's based on the Valiant... Wait, yeah, um, that you're, is you're, one. You're, I was that is that is one year ago to the day. We are recording the show on March fifteenth, and the March fifteenth box office from Comscore. That was the last time that they reported the worldwide box office grosses. It has officially been an entire year without Comscore and the worldwide box office estimates. So very sad to see. We can't wait till they come back. And you know what? This week, I have never felt less sure of our totals and our numbers and our figures. I think everybody was so busy with all the award show stuff, nobody bothered to really do a good roundup of the worldwide box office. So these numbers are extremely tenuous. Yeah, and, and before you- before everybody writes in, Comscore is reporting grosses to journalists, but they're not actually making them public necessarily. They're they're more like, hey, here's some. Well, if they're you know- giving them to journalists, that is public. Are they giving them to journalists and square them to? They have a chart online available. They haven't updated it in a year. Right, and they that, are not that provide- they haven't updated. Yes, correct. All right, but they're not giving secret information to journalists and saying, "Don't tell anybody." No, no, not at all. So what are you saying they're doing? No, I send you, you know, I, I forward you what I that's, get. That's just the North American minimal stuff. Yeah, that's not the big roundup of everything. Yeah. No. So we're looking at worldwide box office. As far as I know, and there is big news this week, but the number one movie around the world is Shin Evangelion Je- Jekig Joban. 
This is a Japanese animated film. It's the series finale in the Evangelion series. I perhaps am mispronouncing that. I am not an anime expert. It grossed $30 million on its opening week in Japan. It did great box office. It was the second biggest IMAX opening of all time, right behind the movie that just became Japan's highest grossing film of all time. So that box office is open for business. That is great news. We have other great news from a reissue and another great news from another big market in the world. But so the is, it, is, it the, is it the second largest in Japan or the second largest ever anywhere? No, no, no. Or no, IMAX? No. It was the second largest in Japan. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it was Sorry. like a couple million dollars. You know. Okay. Yeah. At number one around the world is Shin Evangelion, $30 million. At number two around the world, I believe, is Raya and the Last Dragon with $27 million. I'm not even going to give the totals because I'm not even sure of them except for one film. At number three is Hi Mom, the, Jap the Chinese comedy. I can't wait for the remake of this. $23 million it made this week. At number four, the number two film in China, it was only released in that country, it's Avatar. James Cameron's Avatar was quick released at the last minute in China. The Lord of the Rings may be coming out soon there. The Lord of the Rings is getting a reissue here in the U.S. as well. But in China, Avatar, which was hugely popular at the time, it made about $200 million. And that was a lot of money given the era and how few screens they had. It was not as well built as it is now. So... People were ripe to return to this film. It grossed $21 million over the weekend, and it is now at $2,811,000,000. It was almost the number one film in China for the week, but Hi Mom edged it out, I believe. And it is now the highest grossing film of all time. Again, take that, Avengers. <laughs> so that's interesting. And right below that, I believe, is Detective Chinatown 3. I could not find an accurate update for how much money it made this week. Uh, the, the totals of what it's made to date are very confusing. Three different sources had three different answers. I threw up my hands in frustration, but it probably lands on the charts sometime somewhere around here, number five or six. If you know how much money Detector Chinatown 3 has made, <gasps> Sperling, can you feel it coming? Tell us. Indeed, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail, which we will play on a, on one of our later episodes. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at ShowbizSandbox, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash ShowbizSandbox. And Cat and Mice, why can't they get along? But the studios are glad because Tom and Jerry remains a mainstay. The, the live-action animated hybrid, Tom and Jerry, is back on the charts. Another $10 million this week. Right below that is Tom Holland starring in Chaos Walking, the first in a potential trilogy. But given how poorly the film is doing, I don't think it's going to happen. It made $6 million this week. But below that is a movie that's really found traction. It's Andy Lau's comic thriller Endgame. That's mostly in China. It made another $5 million this week. It's now past the $100 million mark. Denzel Washington's flick The Little Things with Rami Malek. That made another $2 million. And here's some more good news. We have Shia Evangelion opening big in Japan. We have Avatar regaining the, regaining the throne as the biggest movie of all time. And now we have Ruhi, a comedy horror film in India, a Hindi-language film being released in India. Namaste, Bollywood. They are back in business. I think it opened up to about $2 million. So they're not full steam ahead yet, but they are turning on the lights. So that is great to see. Great to see that India is coming back online. And finally, right below that is Minari. 
just a day when it got great news from Oscar nominations. It also made about another million dollars, mostly in Korea. I think it's at about $4 million worldwide. So the box office is there. It's happening. Movies are being released. Mo- records are being set. Just not in North America yet. But there is good news, isn't there? You might be able to go to the movies. Yes, in Los Angeles, at least. And now, of course, in New York. Uh, Los Angeles and Orange County, the the uh, county just south of Los Angeles between L.A. and San Diego, they are reopening today with 25% capacity. At least, I should say, cinemas are reopening today. They've been open. You know, the counties have been open. But uh, now cinemas, gyms, uh, you know, theaters and museums can open at 25% capacity. And perhaps that'll give Governor Newsom something to do once he's out of work. Uh, anyway, so and it couldn't happen. It couldn't happen quickly enough because the AMC theater chain announced they lost four point six billion dollars in 2020. They lost four and a half billion dollars in 2020. Well, so, it's good that the, that that Adam Aaron, the CEO of that company, got a twenty million dollar paycheck last year. Then. Exactly. That, that makes literally no sense <laughs> well, to me. But. It would have been it would have been twice as worse if he wasn't on the ball. Uh, well, but, you, know, you know, actually, AMC, one of the things that AMC mentioned in their earnings call this week, along with HBO, had an earnings call and all all of that. Uh, they are showing Warner Brothers movies now. Remember, Warner Brothers is releasing their movies day and date with theatrical. And right. Aaron they're, was they're, very they're quick. showing them on HBO Max. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. I should have said that. Uh, they were very quick. AMC was very quick to say, we are not going to be showing Warner Brothers movies if it hurts AMC. Uh, and he says, look, we put out a very clear statement. And you may have noticed that we are playing Warner Brothers movies right now. Now, we never discuss our film terms publicly, and I won't break that pattern. But you should properly assume that if we are playing Warner movies, we and came to an Disney. agreement. And not Disney, right? We we came to an agreement with Warner that any changes in their strategy are being done in ways where AMC shareholders benefit, as opposed to being penalized. Translation: right. This was wi- this was widely reported that Warner Brothers said we understand we're showing them on our on our streaming service. We can't demand the same terms. We will give in. It doesn't mean the theater chains are happy about it, but they're so desperate they made even these terms and said okay. But Disney said tough. We don't care. Take our terms or leave it. And half the chains practically in the, in the North America said, well, we'll leave it. Yeah. You know, it's that's right. Come on, help us out here. But they are open for business. They're ready to show movies, especially award-winning films. And the Berlin film festival just ended and they've got a winner, the golden bear and Sperling, you were in Berlin, weren't you? Yes, I was. I uh, ignored all the advice. I got on a plane and went to a foreign country. No, I didn't do any of those things. Of course, every event these days is being done from home, and the Berlin Film Festival is no different. Now, it's it was have a you ever year. been there before? No, I have not. This exactly. Was the first, yeah, I had. So not. that's a great. That's a great thing. I've never been to Sundance. I have never been to Berlin. I'm a freelance writer. I could have conceivably gotten credentials and gone to those countries if I had, you know, independent wealth and could do that and file stories for people. I hope that they don't limit themselves and say, oh, we give too many journalists. It will cheapen the experience or will hurt the journalists who don't show up or we're letting too many people see the movies in advance and it's hurting the box office or some crazy idea like that. People who are physically challenged, people who can't afford to go, they should open the gates and say, you know what? It doesn't hurt to let all these people show up. 
We should be more open and accepting and encouraging that people who are attending virtually, we should keep allowing them to attend virtually. We should maintain this structure forever and not limit it to just people who can bother to spend a couple thousand dollars to go to con. I would have been covering con for the last 10 years if I didn't have to spend thousands of dollars of my own money. I hope they learn that they say, you know what? Some things are good. And the virtual attendees who can bring attention to the movie are good for the business. It's not going to ever hurt box office. It can only help. So open it up. Don't worry about, oh, we can only have 400 journalists. No. Open up the doors. Well, this year, the Golden Bear was won by... Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. And this is a Romanian <laughs> film by Radu Jude. Uh, and it's about a school teacher who uh, makes a, a sex tape that's supposed to be private uh, with, with her husband. They always are. It, that's kind of the yes, best that's definition true. of a sex tape. If it's not a sex tape, it's porn. <laughs> yeah, it, it gets leaked on the internet. And, Oops. you know, of course, all every, you know, she's a school teacher. So every, you know, it's kind of like the, the, uh, you know that what, what's the right word uh it's about society romanian society and the hip, the hippocratic uh hippocratic no Hi- hypocritical hypocritical that is the word i was looking for the hypocritical stances some people take in society uh it well, was the- shot during the pandemic so there's a lot of commentary on the pandemic as well Oh, the and, movie acknowledges that the pandemic oh, is going on. Oh, they're wearing masks in parts. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. This one, I'm just clarifying. Well, this year at Hollywood, we're going to have a lot of awards talk about female directors. And I know one of your one of the films you saw at Berlin is directed by a woman, Maria Schrader. It's called I'm Your Man. And you think this movie is ripe for remake. That's true. It's about a single academic uh, kind of anthropologist who's studying, you know, cuneiform. She uh, recently single, uh, and she is tasked with reviewing a robotic male companion because that, you know, it's in the near set in the near oh, future. It's, what's his name? It's what's his name from Downton Abbey? Yes, correct. Uh, speaking is he, German, is, it, is he sexy, sexy, sexy? Oh yes, and and you know people, you know people are like, oh, good taste, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's supposed to be her dream man. She like filled out the form, and they made her dream man. And it's not Westworldy, but it's definitely like that person is a very like lifelike robot, and it's about you know her coming to terms with her own. This is ripe for a remake. Shalene Siama also had a film that was there that I neglected to mention, uh, and the name of which is now completely escaping me. And I do not know and, why. And, and the actor, of course, is Dan Stevens. Yes, from, Dan from, Stevens. From Legion and Downton Abbey. Yes. Well, that's cool. But I know one movie that's your favorite. You can remember the name because it's hilarious. It's Ninja Baby. Yeah. So this is a Norwegian film by, and, and I, please forgive me, Yingveld Sve Fika. I hope that's oh the way Oh my God, you, you just it. cursed my mother. Uh, no, I hope not. I hope I didn't put a hex on you or something. Uh, the It's about a, a young girl named Raquel uh, who has all these plans. She doesn't really know what she wants to become, but she's very good at drawing and she wants to do a graphic novel, she thinks, but she definitely does not want to become a mother. There's only one problem. She parties a lot. She does a lot of drugs. She can't exactly remember who she slept with. And oh, by the way, she finds out she's pregnant. <laughs> so it's like knocked up in reverse. It's very funny. And in part because... There is, she's, you know, her character becomes this little drawn baby, this ink, ink and pen baby that she draws that actually talks to her and says, well, okay, put me up for adoption. Hey, Angelina Jolie has like six kids. She's a really good mother. Just get, you know, send me to Angelina Jolie. Like hmm. <laughs> She has full on conversations with this drawn baby. It's, it's a very uh, touching and, and funny movie. All right. 
Uh, is the fam touching or funny? This is about a group of te- girls in a teenage home care in Switzerland. Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? What is it? It is. Uh, it's more of a drama, and this film should not work on any level. It doesn't have a narrative through line. It's, uh, you know, it, it jumps around from character to character, and yet it works amazingly well about, you know, commentary on modern day life uh, and the hardships uh, of modern day life in Switzerland when you aren't wealthy or even if you are wealthy and growing up. And it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. And it's, it knows not to overstay its welcome. It was quite good. By the way, the Shalene Shiyama film was also fantastic called Petite Mama. It's her follow-up mm-hmm. to Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, called Small Mother, Petite Mama. Very interesting. I really liked it. Oh, good. I'm, you know, I loved uh, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I thought that was terrific. Uh, is this film, it's, it sounds like a really promising directorial film by Fred Bailiff. Uh, is it his first film? Are you familiar with him? I am not familiar with him. I believe it is a first film. I don't know if it's going to be everybody's cup of tea because... Well, that's okay. I don't care. I'm not looking for a film that's going to gross $400 million. If it's a distinctive film by a guy you think, wow, this guy's really talented. Well, that's that's good enough for me. Yeah, I think somehow he manages to pull it off. And I think even the reviews of the film were like, how does this work? This should not, this should not work at all. And yet it does. Well, well, he's made um, several uh, documentary films and a short or two, but he also made a film called Tapis Rouge and uh, something about proving the scientific proof of the existence of God from 2019. So he has a couple films to his credit, along with some shorts and a documentary movie, but I look forward to checking it out. But uh, speaking of documentaries... By the way, the, uh, speaking of documentaries, the Tina mm-hmm. Turner film, I think you're going to love. That yeah. was also shown uh, you, at Berlin. You, you feel like I saw the reviews and they all seem to say, you think you know everything, you think you know the story, it's familiar, but they really make it come alive again in a really good way. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Cool. Now, you've seen all the films at Berlin. I wonder if you saw the French César winner. Bye-bye, morons. That's the movie that won the top prize in France. No, I thought that was actually, uh, when I was reading news stories about this, I was like, how rude. The news outlet is... <laughs> oh, they're not talking to me. Okay. It's normally what I hear. <laughs> I haven't seen that film yet, but the biggest, I think, influential step there was that the best foreign film at the French Césars was Another Round, the Thomas Vinterberg film, which is really on fire. Everybody seems to like it a lot. It got an unexpected Oscar nomination for Best Director. I think you have to consider it the front runner for Best International Film this year. But before we get to all the awards nominations, we still have some Golden Globes fallout. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association put out another press release, and they said, no, no, we really mean it. We're going to do something to address diversity because they realized their 30-second speech on air didn't really you know, nail down the issue and shut everybody up. Well, Time's Up has a suggestion. That's the, the organization push, pushing for equality for women and the end of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. They've got a suggestion for the Golden Globes, for the people at the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They said to the entire board, quit. You should quit and open up the group to new members and everyone on the board should quit. And in fact, another really big move, top Hollywood publicists are urging their clients not to work with the HFPA until it gets its act together on diversity. That's the most notable move of all. If the publicists and and actors say, you know what, we're done. We're not going to make nice. We're not going to schmooze with you until you actually make some real moves. That will actually perhaps light a fire under them. Well, from the HFPA to actual foreign press, or at least foreign, uh, the BAFTA nominees 
Ooh, what happened there? That's the British awards, of course. What was well, the they big said, news there? We're, we're gonna, we are going to outdo all of you. You know what? Forget about diversity. We're going to nominate four women as director. Right, and it's been almost a decade since they've had all male nominees. They've had no women for the last decade. They got more and more grief for it. Every year, people are saying this is unacceptable. It is so not diverse, so not reflective of the movies being made and the movies that are being acclaimed. Previously, no year ever contained more than one female director, and rarely that. They now have five best films overall, the women, and 10 of the best British films and five docs. So they are all over, they are, they are all, not 10, but they are all over the place in terms of best British films, best documentaries, best films. There are women all over the place in the BAFTA nominations. However, the diversity in terms of people of color is still very poor. And I'm trying now, there to are a bunch, remember there are a bunch who, of, mm-hmm. who, who are the directors? I didn't. Well, you well, know, uh, Chloe Zhao, of course. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a, we're talking about the international films where where you saw four women ending and being ended uh, nominated as director. So it's all the women that have been scoring big films all year long. Uh, Chloe okay. Zhao, of course, being the most prominent, and of course, promising young woman, directed by. Well, it stars Carrie Mulligan, and it's directed by Emerald Fennel. We got nominations from the American Cinema Editors, the ACE Awards, the American Society of Cinematographers. The set decorators, this is their first year making nominations. What the heck took them so long? The DGA announced their nominees. And unlike all those others, the DGA actually buckled down and said, here are our favorite films of the year, essentially, by announcing what their top picks are. When it comes to all the others, for example, the ACE Awards, they have four big categories, drama, comedy, animated, and documentary. If they want us to know who they think the best job of editing is for the year they need to have a super category and say best in show because it could be a documentary it could be an animated film it sure as heck could be a comedy or a drama those are four very different things but they need to have a best in show if they want to have influence at the oscars now it's great they've announced about 20 films that people should watch and they should take that seriously but you really want to have an impact name a best in show i will say the same for the society of cinematographers they have three big categories feature spotlight which is indie art house and international and that category by the way which is so all-encompassing only has three films in a year where there are so many great indie films that's bizarre and then they have a documentary category same thing give us a best in show set directors they have contemporary period sci-fi fantasy and comedy musical yes those genres have unique demands on them and yes You should honor people in all those categories, but you also need to name a best in show. So often the Oscars will lean towards a period film. Oh, it's got a big, you know, castle. It's merchant ivory. Oh, that's wonderful set decoration because they found some stately home. You know what? There's a lot to do a contemporary film. There's a lot for doing a comedy musical. Set directors appreciate that, and they should be telling us what the best in show are. The DGA does that. They announce their best films of the year. Yes, they have you know, best first time directors and they have a separate category for docs. And I wish actually they would do a best in show for them, but at least they name their five best features of the year by naming the five best directors of the year. They're all nominees. You will see come the Oscar nominations, but they did name two women plus a person of color. And they also had three women in the best first director nominations. So that's great to see. Uh, no, uh, they're all the usual suspects, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, promising young woman trial of the Chicago seven. 
Right, you could sound a little more happy about it, but yes. And in well, documentaries, no, I mean, I, for, for those who are wondering, like, well, who who got nominated in all these well, Guild Awards? Guess been what? Cut by the, the time they get to us, three days late, you know, they were announced four or five days ago. Anybody who wanted to know could find them. There's, you know, they're all the same names. We'll do them in the Oscars. Don't worry, we'll name all the best films come Oscar time. But they did nominate in Best Documentary, The Painter and the Thief, which is one of your favorite films of the year, which unfortunately did not make the cut in the Oscars. But that's where we're at. The Oscar nominations. To calm Sperling down, I will list the eight Best Picture nominees. There were eight this year. Next year, there will be 10, a solid 10. They're going back to just, you know what? There's 10 worthy films in a year. If there isn't, we should, you know, shoot ourselves because that would be crazy. There are 10 worthy films a year, and here they are. Their Best Pictures of the Year nominees are, and you may confuse me with Nick Jonas, but he has a new album out, so enjoy that. I mean, Joe Jonas. So enjoy listening to his new album and the Best Picture nominees, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, which I've yet to meet someone who really likes, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. I've heard good things about Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and Sound of Metal. So not bad. Four of the movies are actually quite... Oh, and Judas and the Black Messiah. I've heard pretty good stuff about that. So half of the 10, I think, are probably quite good. And if you want to talk about the best movies of the year, you better watch them all. So tell me, Sperling, what's the big thing that jumps out for you? Well, the bit, one of the big things that jumps out for me is that this was a year where most people and all the films were basically streamed. There were hardly any films that were primarily viewed. Well, in there were movie no theaters. theaters. There were no movie theaters. They weren't well, open. Of course, they were streamed. You couldn't well, go but to the Promising movies. Promising Young Woman, Nomadland did have theatrical releases. Yeah, it's uh, very limited, poor, and I didn't want to risk my life to see them. Yeah, the movie theaters have been shut down from you guys. Just opened up today. Of course, they're from streaming. What you else make it sound like I've got the keys to the movie theater. I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but so what stands out to me is that even when all of these, even when kind of the playing field is, is leveled, so to speak, uh, everything is streamed, the streamers still didn't rule the day. And by that, I mean, <laughs> really? you know, really? well, even, Netflix well, got the most nominations. Yes, because how, of, there's 24 categories. Not, well, that's dominating. I mean, in the best picture category, look at who All the right. best picture and best directors and best screenwriters are. Well, actually, some of these started as studio films, but they are streaming films now. <laughs> even if even if they were originally That's a studio true. movie, they became a streaming film because those were the only trial of Chicago Seven as a streamer. It yes, is. it's not. And it's they, not it a was studio a Paramount film. film, right? But it ain't anymore. Netflix yes. backed yeah. Mank fully. It picked up Trial of Chicago Seven. It made Ma Rainey. It, it picked up Over the Moon, and it, it collaborated with the Obamas on the documentary Crip Camp. So they lead with 35 nominations. Amazon backed Sound of Metal, Borat's subsequent movie film, and One Night in Miami. Are any of those pickups, or did they make all those pure? Did, did, I mean, did Amazon back that, or did they pick that up? I think Amazon picked which up one? Borat. Did, Borat. Well, Borat, Borat was meant for theatrical, yes. Yes. Uh, and, of, of course... Uh, you Apple know, has Wolf Walkers, an animated film, and so on and so forth. But I don't know. They got 35 nominations more than anyone else. Most of those movies, they made Mank. That's the most nominations. Mank. Ten nominations. It's, the, it's, a, it's a lead for Best Picture. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the front runner for various reasons, but they got the most nominations, and they the film with by far the most nominations. How is that not streamers in front? Well, I, by that I mean, I mean when you look at the the big awards, the leading, uh, you know, best actress, best director, best actor, best screenplay. I uh, see the streamers. 
I see Mank and Trial of Chicago 7 and Ma Rainey and Sound of Metal. Uh, and Hillbilly Elegy for Glenn Close, who will not win again. <laughs> Maybe not. But there is a lot of diversity. Five of the ten lead acting nominations are people of color. That's the most diverse lineup in history. Spike Lee didn't get a nomination, but there were a lot of people of color in a lot of categories. That's for sure. Seventy women scored 76 nominations. We've had our first Muslim and Asian Americans nominated for Best Actor. Nine or ten of the top 20 acting nominations, depending how you count Sasha Baron Cohen, are people of color. Uh, three of the five best director nominations are women or people of color. This is the first time in history two women were nominated for best director. Chloe Zhao became the first woman in history to receive four nominations in one year. Uh, and as a, as, a, as a sort of an asterisk, Chadwick Boseman became the, eighth, the seventh or eighth actor nominated posthumously. So that's very exciting. There's one woman early on Don't who wasn't. Think, I mean, I think he's going to win. You don't think he's going to win? Uh, no, I never said he wasn't going to win. I was saying it's not a given that he's going to win. Oh, okay. But and and but you look at it, and most of the people nominated posthumously didn't win. But oh, interesting. The last, the last uh, uh, you know, Peter Finch won for Network, and most recently Heath Ledger won for The Dark Knight. Those are the only two people to win. So once in the '70s, and once with Dark Knight. That's it. The other five people or six didn't win or i should say four or five so now we have chadwick boseman he'll have another chance to even up the score uh it could certainly very well happen there's no doubt about it uh riz ahmed could win it too so don't be surprised but yeah he's he seems like the front runner but not because of the golden globes or anything else but because we've got him in you know the sag nominations and we've got him in the oscar nominations and the lock and and the film he's in eh, didn't do so great did it you know no. uh that's that's that doesn't help Sound of Metal, though, that's nominated for Best Picture, right? Yes, it is. So that would right. actually make more sense. You're absolutely right. right. But, it, but again, he actually has a lot of sentiment, and people think he's a great actor. They want to honor him. He absolutely could win. I wouldn't bet against him, but I don't think it's a stone-cold lock. But what we'll if, find what out What about Anthony tonight. Hopkins for The Father? You know, No, I think it's Riz Ahmed or, or, or Chadwick Boseman. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. But Mank is the leader. It has 10 nominations. There are six other films who have six nominations. However, we don't think Mank is the lead, is the front runner, do we? No, no, without right. a doubt. No. Why not? Because Mank did not get an editing nomination or a screenplay nomination. What was the last time somebody won the Oscar without getting an editing nomination in the last 40 years? Hold on, Lee. Carry the six, add the two. I, yeah, I don't know. That was, right my, my, that was my. That was my. Uh, that was my. But come on, it's not funny if I know. Oh, of course it is. You're allowed to be smart. It was Birdman, and why did Birdman win despite not getting an editing nomination? Because there was no editing in the film. It was one long tracking shot. Yeah, that was the whole. The, the point. editing, so, like the guy who made, he was there for a day. He made eight cuts. You know, right? <laughs> so, right. There is editing in the movie, but it's it's seamless, and so it's not surprising that movie didn't get an editing nomination. It didn't reflect the lack of support for the movie. So basically, you can say in forty years, no film, pretty much, has won without winning the without getting a nomination in editing screenplay nomination man got no screenplay nomination only two movies in the last like 60 years or 50 years have won the oscar without getting a screenplay nomination that would be james cameron's deathless film titanic which rightly did not get a nomination for a screenplay or the sound of music that one best picture without getting a screenplay nomination that's why we don't think mank 
is a front runner. What about Trial of the Chicago 7? That's a big SAG movie. Tons of actors, acting nominations for it, six nominations overall. Why did they look weak? Well, because they have no nomination for Best Director. Aaron Sorkin both uh, wrote the film and he, of course, directed the film. Uh, Actually, it's the other way around. He directed the film and, of course, he wrote the film. But uh, here he's directing. He didn't get a director nomination. And it's, it's, it's rare that a film wins Best Picture without winning Best Director, much, much less so now that the, there's a preferential ballot. So over yeah. the last 10 years, the preferential ballot has kind of done away with that trend where Best Director automatically leads to Best Picture. But so he could be still. everybody's second favorite film and sneak in over the line. Correct. Everybody That's can right. say, well, I liked, I liked uh, Sound of Metal. And, you know, it could be Best basically- Best trial is the guy over Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about The Father? What's the weakness in that movie? Well, uh, again, no director, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. no cinematographer. Right. That's not as crucial, but it's telling that, that it doesn't get a cinematography. You know, you want all those big top technical awards. It did get screenplay and picture and, and, and acting, but no director and supporting role. So, so that's good. But yeah, no director and to a lesser degree. We've got three front runners, we think. Minari, Nomadland, and Promising Young Woman. You have to feel like Nomadland is the front runner. It could be Minari, though, you know, or Promising Young Woman, but I feel like Nomadland and Minari really have the heat. Minari it's only it's only weaknesses that it got no editing nod it also didn't get cinematography but uh uh that's not as crucial promising young woman it didn't it's got everything except no cinematography not really a sign of weakness but it's the only thing we can point to no madland no signs of weakness it got all the big top technical awards all the awards you would expect best picture best director best screenplay best editing best cinematography and so on the only sign of weakness perhaps is that maybe david strathairn could have gotten a nomination for best supporting actor and he didn't but that's a stretch those three i think are probably stronger than uh than the other three that we mentioned so minari and nomadland look like front runners with maybe promising Young woman a dark horse but i doubt it because it's funny so there you go yeah, and you know when you mentioned international film earlier, another round or frankly, I like its its uh, original name. Drunk was its original <laughs> name. That's what uh, it should have been called. Uh, you know, Thomas Vinterberg was nominated for best director uh, this year, and of course, uh, international film. It's nominated for best international film along with with films from Romania and Tunisia. Uh, that's right. And in Docs, the Docs had a great international flair. South Africa got a nomination for My Octopus Teacher. Romania got a nomination for Collective. And Chile got a nomination for The Mole Agent. That is the most diverse the documentaries have ever been. And if you look at the diversity in the people of color, in the women, in the international flavor to categories like documentaries, what's going on here? Why is it happening now? Well, because the, uh, well, first of all, there's two reasons, really. One, Mm -hmm. they expanded the Academy's membership, so they started letting in younger people, a more diverse uh, membership base. And more people from around the world. And more people from around the world. Number two, what you're seeing is, uh, you know, the fact that there are no studio films. So (laughs) there's that to contend with as well. That's true. Those studio films, you know, like you say, some of these films were studio films picked up by Indies, and they're probably the movies that would have been contending. The movies we missed out on this year were like Wonder Woman 1984. You know, they were movies that would have been big blockbuster movies, but they wouldn't necessarily have been players at the Oscars. That's just not a game a lot of studios play anymore. That's where the streamers are having an impact. We'll have to see what happens next year. Do they want to block out all the good movies just because they are on streaming? You know, probably. We'll have to see how it plays out. 
Now, the last big industry event, film uh festival-wise, that was actually held in person the way the way film festivals used to be held in the before times was Sundance in 2020 Mm -hmm. of the best picture nominees. Three of them are from Sundance, the father Minari and promising young woman Minari won Sundance last year. And and that's the, that's the best that they've ever done. I would imagine. I I don't know, but that's pretty darn good. That no, I don't think they've ever done that. So that's, that's a great pick. I didn't, I didn't notice that. I didn't realize that I've never gone to Sundance. Maybe I can go virtually someday. That's cool to see. And some of those movies are tackling things like promising Young woman about sexual misconduct and, and other issues. And that's a hot topic. We haven't covered it, but oh my God, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Chris Harrison will not host The Bachelorette. Piers Morgan storms off the set of Good Morning Britain because he said he doesn't believe Meghan Markle when she said she was feeling suicidal. People were not pleased by that. And Sharon Osbourne is in the hot seat on her TV talk show, The Talk, because she sort of defended Piers Morgan and felt blindsided by the questioning. That show has gone on hiatus while they look into what happened. Piers Morgan has left Good Morning Britain, but that's no big deal because he was probably going to go to one of the Fox News-like talk shows that are going to debut with 24-hour news channels. They're going to bring the worst of American news commentary to the UK, and Piers Morgan is perfect for that. So it's chaos in the world of sexual misconduct. It's almost as if people are being held to account for their public comments. It's crazy. You know, in that Romanian film, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, Mm -hmm. in the middle of it, it, no, in the end, at the, toward the end, there was this whole thing like somebody said, oh, that's not true news. That, that news isn't true. And it was like a big, (laughs) like it was a big group scene where everybody's wearing masks and socially distanced and somebody yelled, Fox News, Fox News. So even in Romania, (laughs) it was like, what? That's like when they said, oh, that's not, that's not true. Whatever you're saying is not true. The guy yells Fox News. And I thought, wow, I guess Fox News has a reputation that really precedes it. <laughs> well, streaming dominated the Oscar nominations, at least according to me and in, in the in the numbers, of course they do. And they're also dominating the streaming news because that's the world that they're so impactful. We talk about them every week now. We've got a link in our show notes to the most popular properties on streaming for the week of February 8th through 14th. Nielsen provides a breakdown for the most popular in original series, acquired series, and movies. And we combine them into an overall list so you can see what are the most popular, period. And topping the list for the second week in a row is Firefly Lane, a show on Netflix based on a on a Kristen Hannon novel, I believe, with a, adult characters flashing back to their teenage friendship. That's a very popular film. And in fact, it's on Netflix. They have nine of the top ten movies in our overall top ten. The only one that's not from Netflix is Disney Plus's WandaVision. Uh, in acquired series, all 10 are on Netflix, which is either a sign of weakness or a fact that people can still make money, you know, sending out their movies and letting Netflix and other people pay them bucks to acquire them and put them in their library. In movies, five of the top 10 are from Netflix and the other five are from Disney. But Disney had big news, didn't they? They've done it again in terms of subscribers. What they they went up is... Yeah, they've topped 100 million subscribers worldwide. That was pretty darn quick. And they're also raising the price. They've raised their price in the U.S. to $8, uh, so that's interesting. Uh, they also signed a seven-year deal with Hockey's NHL. The NFL, American football, is becoming hugely competitive in terms of acquiring the programming. You've got programming on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere you can imagine, along with the networks and cable. It's a madhouse, and the price just keeps exploding. So Disney stole away NHL from Peacock, from NBC. They're not going to be streaming games on ESPN+. Plus. And Hulu, 
along with ESPN and ABC. Amidst all this craziness, live sporting events are still hugely popular. But Universal isn't standing still, are they? Are you talking about Peacock? What's going on there? Well, that's right. So Dan Brown is the author of The Da Vinci Code. That's the the series starring Robert Langdon. Tom Hanks has played him in the movies. NBC announced very loudly they were making a major priority of turning Dan Brown's character, Robert Langdon, into a TV series. They were, it was a huge event. It was going straight to series. It's so good, they are now moving it to Peacock. And that's literally what they said. Oh, the show's so good, we're not going to show it on NBC. It's going to go straight to series at Peacock. And that is kind of okay. mind-blowing. They are truly saying, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, to heck with you. Our priority is Peacock. Uh, Bob Chapek said the same thing at Disney basically about ABC, like, you know, Disney plus is where it's at. That's where our priority is. And NBC is saying the same thing with Peacock, George RR Martin series. Uh, it's a show based on a anthology series. He and other writers do called wild cards that was set up at Hulu. As soon as it got free, it boom, it jumped to Peacock. Oh, and by the way, Peacock lost $914 million in its first year. Huh? You know, they got to get people to sign up before they can make any money. And Comcast is like, all right, we didn't lose a billion dollars. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Netflix, you know, all these series, Netflix paid $30 million for Dev Patel, actor Dev Patel's directorial debut, Monkey Man. That's cool. When you look at the charts, you say, well, gosh, the top, the most popular movie, War Dogs on Netflix, only was streamed for 326 million minutes last week. That doesn't even compare to say, you know, Firefly Flame, which had 1.2 billion minutes viewed. You have to think, gee, why are you investing in movies? Well, yes, TV shows have more minutes because there's more episodes. So even an eight-episode series has probably got like 300 or 400 minutes as opposed to a movie, which is usually 100 minutes. That's not the same as saying people didn't love it. So if they saw War Dogs and they love it, that keeps people loyal to Netflix. If they see To All the Boys, Always and Forever, the latest in that series, or they see The Dig, the British film, and they love it. And I've heard lots of people say they like The Dig, that British film airing on Netflix starring Ray Fiennes. Yes, it was only streamed for 187 minutes last week, but it may have kept some people very, very happy and make them feel like, I love this Netflix. It's worth my money every month. So it's not just about total minutes. It's about how happy people are with it and recognizing that a movie is not going to have as many minutes as a TV show. It's okay. They're sort of apples and oranges. But I think it's a big deal that Netflix played that money for Dev Patel because they're recognizing he's a person of color. They want to they want to diversify into India. They want to draw people there. This movie with this director, that makes sense for them worldwide. Well, Michael, if you think Netflix paying, what was it, $30 million for a Dev mm. Patel movie is a big deal. I wonder what you'll think of some of these stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop this week. Of course, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Here's our first story. You ready, Michael? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, listen carefully. News Corp mogul Rupert Murdoch turned 90 on March 11th. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> I think it is a big deal. Uh, there was a story in The Economist about all of this. Fox has already sold off its film and TV studios, of course. Now News Corps has Fox News and newspapers and magazines and the publisher HarperCollins in its media empire. Fox made 80% of its money from Fox News in 2020. But Rupert Murdoch is going to be gone someday soon. And that means we're going to see Succession come to real life. Succession, the reality show. You've got Lachlan Murdoch on the one side who wants 
wants to keep on foxing. And then the other side, you have James Murdoch, Elizabeth and Prudence, his other siblings, and they may outweigh Lachlan when it comes to the vote and control of the company. They may want to turn it into another direction. Maybe they'll cash out. Maybe he'll get his way. Maybe they'll kick him out. It's going to get ugly. And yes, it's, it's unseemly to say, but when a mogul on top of a huge empire uh, starts to approach his last days, that's when the ugliness and the tussle start to get real. And yes, it's really something to think about. This is going to happen probably sooner, not him dying, but stepping down, stepping away, you know, stepping back and the kids having to have their chance to say, what are we going to do now? It's, it's going to happen very, very soon. Sometimes launching a show after the Super Bowl can actually work. It certainly did the trick for Queen Latifah's reboot of The Equalizer on CBS. And just remember, this is CBS. Remember that? (laughs) From from the Grammys. Yeah, we'll be talking about that in a moment. Uh, The show enjoyed one of the biggest holds on Super Bowl audience in years, retaining some 40% of that massive audience. And they liked what they saw it. Ever since, the crime drama pulls in more than 11 million viewers a week in live plus seven viewing. That's bigger than almost anything on the networks outside of, I don't know, sports. And now it's been renewed for a second season. You know, Queen Latifah, she pulls them in. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. That that platform doesn't always work, but it does. Undercover boss, family guy, the good yeah. place, the wonder years. It can work. You know, you want a big show that can appeal to a lot of people and Queen Latifah delivered networks can still make money and that's a show where there's a lot of back end believe me so don't anybody well i don't know wait a second is it going to go to paramount plus maybe it's locked in there already well country artist morgan whalen is it whalen or wallen i I never know um but he remains at number one on the billboard album charts despite country radio stations ripping it off the air and tv (laughs) star olivia rodrigo's song driver's license ended its eight-week run atop the hot 100 in her place, guess who it is? It's Drake. For the past few months, we've been reading that Drake is passe. He's old news. He's boring. Even Drake sounded bored over rapping how popular he is. Someone should have told Drake he's over because he just debuted at number one on the Hot 100. Oh, and he, he's also at number two. Uh, but uh, not to be outdone, he's also at number three. For the first time in history, one act debuted in the top three slots. Oh, Drake's over all right. As in over the top, baby. As in all over the Billboard charts. You see what I did there? You see? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, yeah, you know, yeah, okay, yeah. big deal or big whoop? Uh, big deal. This is a new era in terms of how songs can debut so high on the charts like this and have you know all 20 songs on your album appear on the Hot 100 for a week or two after your album drops. Yes, that all happens. It's still a big deal that he said debuting at number one, number two, and number three. If it was easy, everybody would do it. So that's kind of amazing. And debuting at number four is the song Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic, a 70s retro group. No, it's actually a super group starring Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, and they performed it on the Grammys. I thought that was a really fun performance, but I can't wait to talk about that. Yes, in fact, why don't we talk about it now? Because that wraps up Big Deal or Big Wolf for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. This week, well, longtime listeners of Showbiz Sandbox will all know this week's guest because not only has he been joined, he's joined us before, but also because we regularly mention his work on various award shows, his books, and all of his journalistic endeavors. On a side note, by the way, you've also heard me butcher some of his jokes when I try to like read his 
his tweets and I give poor line readings of them. And then Michael just kind of like stares at me. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm referring to David Wilde, who has been writing the Grammy Awards telecast for at least 20 years, including last night's show. And if there was ever a year to speak with David about how everything came together on music's biggest night, it's this year. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It will be a hostile witness uh, that I will be today because I can't say anything about how. No, I'll try to tell you what I can tell you, but I still don't even. We haven't. We were spending the last month not telling anybody anything, basically, you know, because we were a trying to build the mystery and b we didn't know because everything was subject <laughs> right. to change, including the date of the show. We thought we were doing the show in January, and then uh, the pandemic had other ideas and. Uh, so the truth is, we were keeping the secret, and I haven't even got to call like the Ben Winston and the rest of the production team to go, hold on, what can we say now? So I'm just going to try to be a little subtle on a few points. Well, that, that actually is a good point. Ben Winston is the new executive producer. You used to work with Ken Ehrlich. And so not only did you have a new show to produce, a new kind of show to produce this year, but you had a new executive producer to do it with. So a double challenge. Yeah, in the... Um I, I, I do think of television sometimes as like a, a, a gymnastic event and the level of difficulty or like a dive at the Olympics, the level of difficulty of what we were doing with a new team, a new team that didn't really ever get together other than Zooms like this. Like imagine <laughs> this horror of just having to be on Zoom. No, but I, we spent a lot of the last four months all Zooming like constantly and getting to know each other. But there were people like... There's this amazing woman who comes from the world of choreography and like the sort of creative consultant for uh, named Fatima, Fatima Robinson, who was on the team. And like when we got together downtown to actually start working together, like Ben Winston said, have we ever met? Like we <laughs> really met. Like there were a lot of people who had never met and had become a family, like a real team. Uh, yeah. And so it is. Yeah. It, the transition. Every transition is a big deal, but I have to say it was interesting. Rolling Stone, my old uh, stomping grounds journalistically, wrote about the team and they interviewed Ben and they reported that I was the only survivor. Like it sounded like <laughs> an episode of Survivor. Like the, the only returning uh, person is David Wilde, you know, who started in uh, 2001 and has been a producer since 2016. And I, I had to write them, tweet them back and go, no, other people, there are a few other people, they just changed their titles. I think they got promotions. I'm just the one who... <laughs> well, well, you were in the same boat as the artist because when Taylor Swift won Album of the Year, she said, hey, Bon Iver, I can't wait to meet you. They made an <laughs> album together and she's never met him. So if you can't describe the show to people, how do you get them to come on? You had the Beatle, Ringo Starr there, to hand out the final award, Record of the Year. What could you tell them in terms of What's going to happen? I mean, they like to know what to expect. And you're like, uh, we'll tell you later. Well, we have, you know, a, a Ben Winston is a uh, exceedingly charming, you know, powerhouse. And then Patrick Metton, our new talent producer, he, they were booking for almost everything. The one exception was Ringo, where uh, I had been um, uh, helping him with a book that came out in uh, December. And uh, I was driving to his house and I got a call from Ben. So I said, you know, Ben, it's always good to have a Beatle to present. <laughs> and there's only two left. So should I say something? He goes, 
no, 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 we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. You know, it's like we because I, as if you did, you both watch the show last night, or I don't oh, know. of course, of course, no, because we did it in a different way where there were like a lot of the awards were given out by the workers from the independent uh, music venues, so that that was so there really were only a few presenter spots, so. It, it was a different process. Plus, it, there's just things that when I've heard commentary on the show, which thankfully has been people, a, a lot of people love the show, which we appreciate. Uh, but one of the things that's funny is some people are like, they veered so young this year. And it's like, I always what? feel like we're calling in and going, well, did you, were you not aware of this whole pandemic thing? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know, that makes it a little less easy for 70 and 80 year olds to agree to fly across the country or across the world and be somewhere. Uh, Ringo, I knew was not, was in great health and having been at his house, you know, and, you know, in a face guard and all, but I knew he was, you know, doing great. And uh, so I literally, I, in that one case, I got involved. And so let me ask Ringo. And I wrote what could only be described as a crazy Jerry Maguire letter in the middle of the night saying, begging, please come and present the last award. Because I thought Lizzo, start with Lizzo and end with Ringo. You got all the O's <laughs> covered, and, uh, which ended up being, I loved both of them. I thought they were fantastic. And But Ringo, I literally, the note, I would actually like to find it uh, and read it because I think I was like trying to say, basically, you can watch the beginning of the show, leave your house, and then you're basically just pull up into a parking lot and we'll hand the award and we can get right back on the road. And, uh, <laughs> and literally until yesterday, because we were hiding everything, he was like, at some point I made it clear to him or someone in the talent department made it clear, no, you, you get out of the car. And I think it's like, there was almost yeah, this impression that it was like a vaccination where you could just like put your arm out and, uh, <laughs> here's your award. Yeah, <laughs> they give you a timer for 15 minutes and say, yeah. okay, now you can go after 15 exactly. minutes. So you, uh, well, could, I will say I volunteered as the timer at the magic mountain vaccination spot. And, uh, it's actually called observation uh, to do, you do, uh, observer observation area. And it was the best job besides writing for the Grammys that I've ever had. I loved it. It was really meaningful. The only, and what I could tell you exactly everything you do when you're a volunteer, but the hardest part for me was adding 15 minutes because I'm, I'm so bad at math. I'm married to a, 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 a business management, a, a business manager partner in a firm and my son is a statistical analyst graduate from Berkeley in, you know, and they could add 15 minutes, but that's hard for me. <laughs> they just handed us a little timer already preset. But if you had, <laughs> if you had Lizzo and Ringo, it's a shame you couldn't get Karen O of the yeah, yeah, yeah's right in the middle of the show. So yeah, well, we were running out of O's. O's yeah. Well, the, the show began, of course, with something very unusual. You had a group of acts all set up in the same big space. There's Harry Styles over here, there's Billie Eilish over there, and so on and so forth. And Trevor Noah, your host, wandered around and talked to them. And immediately, of course, I thought about later with Jules Holland, that great UK music show where we'd have all the acts set up. Was that something you were thinking about or thing? And it would it worked great. I thought it was cause cool to see the artists watching each other and nodding along and sort of supporting each other, sort of like a cutting session or a late night jam session, but yeah. they're all there and it would have been even better with an audience, but I thought it worked really well. Next time, if you do it, you can have the audience there cheering, of course, they'll be excited, but that dynamic of them 
right, you know, with each other, I thought was really special. Yeah, Ben Winston uh, comes from England and obviously and has talked about uh, Jules Holland being. Uh, I love a, that show. Uh, an influence on the thinking. Obviously, it's also, and I thought it was brilliant, and also uh, uh, Missy Buckley, uh, uh, who did the uh, sort of scenic design of the place. It was just this magical space that they created. But for me, it once I saw what it was, and I what I what I said to Ben is that it actually captured what I have loved about the Grammys for twenty years, which is listen, it's great, it's great Staples Center, it's great being with a big crowd. But what's the coolest thing is my vantage point is backstage, yeah. seeing these artists from different genres telling each other they're fans, clapping exactly. for each other. Like I could tell you stories like I mean, Paul McCartney, like rushing out to watch rehearsals of like other artists from Cap. He was like, I remember one year, and this was like in recent years, uh, not that long ago, like uh, it just happened to McCartney, Glenn Campbell, and the Beach Boys were all on a Grammys. This is like only like the last 10 years, I think. And it was fantastic because McCartney was like a cheerleader in the crowd. And that spirit of the community of music I thought yeah. in the, under the most difficult circumstances imaginable, I feel like Ben Winston and the whole team pulled together and you felt that, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was, we were, you know, those cheers were just the cameraman and us and, you know, uh, the other artists, that's all there was. And because we were following incredibly strict protocols, I was, I think I was tested every day of the last through like two weeks every mm, wow. day uh and i've you know i've done i've done other shows and been tested every third day but because of the access to the talent and because how seriously they took it i just you know i no one has ever been more tested uh other than my wife by being married to me i've never seen <laughs> it was it was just endless uh testing and also like i've learned over the last year that like my job a face guard and a mask make my job difficult because one of my jobs is to laugh at my own jokes so that <laughs> some, so someone appears to like them and they appear to suck less. And when you literally, when you have a face guard and a mask on, you can't really make much audible noise. It's no. hard to smile even. Well, here, here's a question. So Trevor Noah was your, was your, it's the first time that Trevor Noah has been the, the host, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. Um, that years all blend and together, but he's now, very difficult to work with. We all know that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love him. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I watch his show and I thought like, who's writing his material is David writing his material because some of that stuff is very, very funny. It looked at times as if he was ad-libbing it though. Uh, and then I, I was, texting with Michael during during the show and I said, "Oh, we should start a a uh, a crowdfunding campaign for Harry Styles so we can finally buy a shirt." Right. And then for like half an hour I didn't hear back. I was like, "What? That didn't work?" And Michael said, "Yeah, ask David whether that's a funny joke, whether that would get you hired or not." <laughs> um the way well the interesting thing about Trevor was a dream host for me and what happened my history with him was really interesting because three years ago when we went to new york for the grammys i had we were presenting the comedy award that year for like the first time in forever and i had requested because he's one of my favorite comedians uh to have trevor present that when we were in new york i'd made that request through the publicity firm we got back the the answer he's unavailable then on the way to what? new york i get on the plane 
He's, they said he was had a gig and he was unavailable. Uh, so I get on the plane to New York and my, I'm there with my nephew, who's a manager of artists and all that. And he goes, you want to sit together? I'm like, no, let's get our own seats. Just like, you know, I wanted to fall asleep on the flight or whatever. I sit down next to me is Trevor Noah. And as non shy as I am at the shows and things like that, I don't want to bother anyone on a flight. So right. I didn't say anything, let him relax, you know, but about three quarters through the flight, I think I'm watching a football game. Uh, and he says, he starts talking to me about the game and I go, so at the, towards the end of the flight, I said, I'm so sorry you, were, you couldn't present at the Grammys uh, Sunday. He goes, what? I said, I'm sorry you had to turn it down. He goes, no one told me I was asked to present at the Grammys Sunday. And I said, well, they said you had a, a gig this weekend. He goes, I have a gig Friday night in Florida. I will fly back Saturday for the Grammys. And <laughs> that was how he ended up presenting the award to Dave Chappelle, I believe. You didn't have the slot booked? Well, no, no, that was a, we had a, it was a, this is like five days or five, six days earlier or something. Uh, no, we didn't. Oh, uh, wow. How often know, do you fill in those slots at the last minute? Increasingly over the last few years, almost every show is filling in very much at the last minute. Wow, uh, that must be stressful. Oh, well, for me, my main job, because it's weird, I've sort of become a writer and a producer on a lot of shows, but the writer part, you can't do your job until right. you know who you're writing for. So a lot of times my wife says, why don't you just come into some shows the night before? Because they never, often the bookings are very, very last minute. Wow. Uh, so yeah, but oh, but Trevor, uh, we had his, he had his, from his show, from The Daily Show, uh, you know, a couple of his writers came out here uh, with him, and we had a couple others on Zoom, so they contributed a lot of jokes. Ben Winston, we all sort of, you know, uh, they took a lot of my sort of hosting material, added a couple of the greatest jo I, I just love, they thought they did a great job. And, but the, 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 mo the best thing is that Tr Trevor Noah, in addition to being witty and funny and, and really pleasant and smart to deal with he's also like some sort of show business uh genius like a real host so that even like uh what my wife said is like oh i better not say it that way but like you know there's a lot of people there's a lot of these in reality and those kind of shows there's hosts who are just really good at hitting a mark he's that that's all a lot of them are good at but he's actually good at hitting a mark and a punchline like that walk and talk beginning it's funny i heard someone i've heard i've heard almost always uh, almost all positive things but someone said i thought it was really weird to begin a show with like telling you like a lay of the land oh that was super hard well it was hard and i thought it was absolutely necessary and it totally yeah. worked well no yeah. thank you that's my thought is like how could you have begun this show and not tried to give you tell people what's going to happen what the hell's going we, on where are we what's why happening? are these people on a roof yes <laughs> no no and so i thought that you know and that was uh ben winston our executive producer's vision but i thought we executed it beautifully because literally what you wanted to do which is what i think a lot of these shows that have people have been frustrated with a lot of like i saw shows like the mtv awards where like there could be great artists doing great things, but you don't even know, is this like a video game? I don't know, is, you know, where yeah. is anybody? What is going on? And is this all just sort of like, you know, in my imagination? Whereas 
you want to create that sense of place and community. And, you know, in this case, we are the music community. So I actually felt that combination of that flowery, magical performance space where we would, you know, have artists watching each other. And then that space outside last night, which just, you know, we frankly did not know who would really turn up. But the idea of getting Beyonce and Taylor's like, there's only like six tables of two and you have, you know, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, Beyonce. It's just like, it was not. And they showed up late, right? They showed up like, they're like, yeah, we're here. Well, we it's also a weird deal where like, I don't think people realize what it's like to shoot now. People don't want to be around, you know, in, especially inside very long. And they even right. asked that people, you, you are trying to get people in and out in as safe and as uh, easy a way as possible. It's just everything you think you know. Like after 20 years, I thought I knew the Grammys to a certain extent. And not this year. You have to <laughs> figure And the pacing of it was just insane. It was, you know, you have that sort of build to a show day, and then you have show days that are just exhausting. But we really had, we were exhausted for the last, the last week. Uh, it's just been intense. Well, and whose idea was it to and do an intent? Yeah, and yeah. an intent, yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, speaking of of sets, I don't know who had to pay the florist, but yeah. <laughs> that was. I looked at that and went, you know what? That's like twenty weddings of flowers yes. in one space. I don't. I would definitely be the first one out the door because I do not want to be left with that florist bill. Well, but yeah, the, so I think the floral editor of the LA Times tweeted me asking me who was the flower vendor. And, of course. Uh, that was not part of my job as a producer. Well, but whose job was it to, to, and who figured out, and this was brilliant, and this is why I'm asking this, who said, you know what, let's go to all the closed down music venues like the Troubadour in Los Angeles and the Apollo in New York. And there was a, there was a one, uh, from Nashville as well. Whose job was that? Which was, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not wearing my station in hat, but I, that's one of the hats. I, besides my Dodgers hats, and this is, I think, one I bought today. I don't even know what I'm wearing, and I'm not going to look. But the station is my favorite venue. What happened was that was Ben Winston, and then he had a, his team, Josie Cliff, who was part of his team, you know, in the Corden world and other projects with his company, Fullwell. They executed that so wonderfully. They asked me, uh, they, they threw it out, like, what were some venues? I happen to be, I spent a lot of time in Nashville. I've done the CMAs for the last right. uh, 19 years. And I go, that's the station in is my hangout. It's the most oh, real. Oh, yeah, it's a great space, yeah. Oh, it's just a real bluegrass bar, real, it's just great. And, uh, in fact, one, uh, I once tweeted a picture there last year, and Peter Frampton said, like, I guess he lives somewhere up in a you know in a great building near there and he goes thanks for your 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 selfie showed me that my apartment was fine (laughs) (laughs) now what surprised me about that segment was that you spent a a considerable amount of time giving the history and in-depth look at those places normally i would have expected you'd say okay we'll get someone from that venue to sort of honor and hear from the apollo hear from you know, whatever. Uh, but you really spent time with them and gave a little history, a little background. It on it. I, yeah. I, you know, that was Ben's vision. I think, and I think it was a great idea. I think, I mean, let's face facts that like the damage that has been done into the music industry is terrible, but these venues, if we don't support them, there will be no place 
to go back to. And and it's not, I think what the guy, uh, JT Gray from the station in said is like, I can't sustain, like, you know, this is, these are not, you know, this is not owned by AEG. This is like <laughs> yes. a, guy, a guy who's running the cast register in a lot of these places. And uh, so, yeah, I thought uh, they were, it was basically we had a lot less patter, you know, and I'm a guy who writes that stuff, but like, yeah. you know, it was basically Lizzo and, and, I got to say, like, there's little, there's tricks that I've done over the last 20 years that I love. Uh, I call them tricks, but I, I sincerely love them. Like, I'll almost always take a great vocalist I love and know well and make them a cappella a little at the presenting mic. Because the truth is, in a big show with great production, if a real singer just gets up there in a mic and sings, you, it's a whole different vibe it feels so exciting and over the years i've had aretha franklin and bonnie Raitt do it i've had wow tv wonder do it many times uh uh little big town all sorts of people but i didn't have because there were very few presenters i said yeah. i was like lizzo was like the first of the sort of celebrity presenters and i said I, and i didn't know her i we had her on the show last year but i didn't wasn't the one speaking to her particularly so i said you don't know me but you're my favorite singer right now would you sing a little? And she, she goes, will I <laughs> and <then laughs> try and stop me? Apologize for singing. I, Cause I just wanted to sing like, you know, cause I love you, you know, but she sang a little bit more and I, I loved it. She's just fantastic. Now, did you write this stuff for the, the venues or did they have somebody? No, no, that was like real journalistically sort of done. Uh, I mean, huh. just the only parts that were really written for them were, and the Grammy goes to, and uh, <laughs> and these are the no the nominations. You know, they uh, that's it was it was real, and you know, I, like the two LA people uh, venues, they just I, you know I hung out with them because they were right there. You know, they were there with us. One of the things you mentioned is that uh, you you were uh, was about the the production of of the show and and went where people were somewhere in LA they could come onto the stage and actually hand out the awards some people weren't even in the country some people were in korea let's say that, that was Which, crazy that was by the amazing way, <laughs> if trevor noah hadn't said oh it's unbelievable they did that in korea they're not here i was looking for where they were in downtown los angeles uh, and if he hadn't said anything, I would have thought, huh, I don't know exactly where they were, but it was pretty cool that they did that in downtown LA. No, that I had no that, idea it was that is exactly why we had to say it. Because when they re they literally recreated our set in, in That was awesome. You know, uh, in Seoul. <laughs> and when we got it, we loved what we loved how they did it. They were phenomenal. But that exact angle of Seoul didn't look much different than downtown LA. So that's why we, if you'll notice, if you go back, this is how great Trevor is like, uh, Ben and I like put that little, the, the thing he said was like, they couldn't be here. So they built here, there, that, that, and they ought to give an award for that. That was us overselling so that you, as you did, would rightly sort of really be hit over the head that that was not L.A. Because uh, yeah, was like we had the same thought. It looks like, you know, who knows downtown L.A.? It's such a strange place. It was like a, a scene from Twin Peaks or the Bob Newhart show or something. They were <laughs> that. It was crazy. But but BTS was a pre-recorded. There were other uh, pre-recorded moments uh, what was the decision as to, okay, this gets pre-recorded, that doesn't get pre-recorded? <laughs> well, no, uh, it is the, 
I, I will not go through what was, first of all, all the awards and that, you know, all of that was 100% 10 second delay. Lie. So that yeah. you could feel that because there were like sirens and, you yeah, know, yeah. Beyonce <laughs> was, you know, uh, Megan the Stallion dealing with the, you know, like, uh, you know, noises from the street. Um, but in terms of performances, you can't do exactly what we have always done like at the staples center because you don't have a turntable stage right and you don't you don't have uh safety wise you cannot just jam everyone on the stage and keep turning it around that stage has to be cleaned and every you know uh it was explained to me that one of my closest friends is brad paisley who i did the cmas with for many years yeah and like when he did his first concert in the pandemic his first like virtual concert or whatever he goes david you have no idea you think okay maybe it'll take a little longer he goes but everything you've ever done in performance in in sort of production like if you always had two guys lift a speaker you know, yeah. you, you can't have the two guys close enough to lift the same speaker. So you have to find different ways. And he goes, it's like what used to take a one day setup is now a four day setup. So that's why uh, the, yeah, there, of course. There, you had to do a different schedule. But you also that's why almost like if you watch the show, there's acts that have. The, so, like, you know, that that's open where you have Harry Styles, Black Pumas, uh, Billie Eilish and and Haim. They're all. They were all there doing that. Like it's you. Like just like you see it. It's just that you can't be doing that and then have a commercial break to change the stage over. You need to rebuild the sets. Yeah, well, we all understand that. Yeah, of course. That's why Silk Sonic was something done separately at a certain time, but it looked great. You know. Yeah, it was just a shame you couldn't have all the excitement and energy of everybody together in a room, but it was cool. But I think you did have the excitement of groups of people together. Yes, yes. Like the RIP, like the in memoriam section. How did you come up with that? Because I thought that worked well. I feel like that was a little different from before. Or do you feel like it's building on something you've done? Yeah, I I think uh, what's weird is the in memoriam. I remember uh, Ken Ehrlich, you know, who uh, I was with him when the, I think he resisted having probably been very wise for years saying there, there was none when I started doing the Grammys, but there was, I remember it was a, it may have been the last year before the, the first time he we went to New York. I don't know what year that was. Um, I got there in 2001. It might've been 2002 or three. We went there uh, after nine 11, I think it was. And, um, but then uh, it was a, uh, um, Joe Strummer from The Clash died, and I'm the right age to have been a big fan of The Clash. So oh, yeah. they asked me, "What do you think we should do?" And I said, "London Calling," and we should do right. it with like. And I think it, the tr- we ended up with Bruce Springsteen, Bruce, Elvis Costello, yeah. and and, and st- little Stephen, and it was a uh, a uh, Dave Grohl and Green Day. No, no, uh, it, it was Dave Grohl, and it was for the Tony from No Doubt was on bass, and Pete from the Attractions on drums, and that was like my dream. That's like me in high school and college putting together <laughs> yeah. my dream band. That was the beginning of the in-memoriam performance at the Grammys, which would be they'd do that and then they'd start rolling images. But this year, for obvious and painful reasons, there were so many legends lost that Ben really sort of pushed us towards doing something bigger to reflect that. Uh, but I will tell you, that was the most work 
I've ever been a part of for anything uh, to do that because a we had to deal with like I, I and I thought it was beautifully done those images sort of so that you would see one performance into the other but you'd also be going past these sort of beautifully lit screens so it had a sort of uh, elegance and uh, emotion to it but yeah that was incredibly complex uh, to and you know and it was very meaningful for me because uh, a number of those people were friends of mine uh, and John Prine last year at the Grammys like mm-hmm, my last mm-hmm. picture was with him we were about to we honored him Bonnie Raitt sang for him last year at the Grammys and then we he was he we were discussing how we we're gonna he was gonna get his lifetime achievement award on a PBS special that I was working with with you know with him on he was flying back from Ireland and then the pandemic hit and. Uh, he was one of the early casualties. And uh, so that was a very difficult and very, to me, very meaningful segment. I, I just think it, it came out beautifully. And like uh, Lionel Richie being a real friend of Kenny Rogers. Brandy right, that Car- was, and he wrote the song. You know, yeah, it's perfect. and he wrote yeah. Brandy Carlisle. She did great. She killed it. That was my favorite performance of the night, along with uh, Silk Sonic, I think. But this this show, you can't judge by the ratings because it's such a crazy year and everybody's ratings fell. You certainly got good reviews, but maybe in general, do you just judge it by like how everybody feels after the show and the vibe from all the artists? Because what matters are the artists and the Grammy people. It's not really the ratings or the reviews. If the artists are happy and the Grammys are happy, you've had a good show, right? Yeah, I have to say, I'm a former journalist, as you know, and I just can't believe how... I'm disappointed in entertainment journalists. Every time an event happens, they act like it's a g- giant surprise. Like, right. Every, like, A, there are forces in TV, broadcast TV. You know, there are maybe how many people in America can't afford cable? How many people, young, there's more young people who don't go watch TV in that way. People are watching in a different way. Every rating is down. So you know it's going to be down. Don't act surprised, of course. In fact, uh, Ben, when we did a group interview for Variety, like the first thing he said was, "When this is when this show's over, the story should not be uh, Grammys down fifty percent. Grammys down four percent goes because it everything television right. is down. It's not the Grammys. It's you know it's anything. But the truth is, yeah. I have never felt a more positive reception to the show." in my 20 years I've, you know, and I, I never felt a greater need for the show. I just think people are watching it in different ways. And I, I think in the end, a lot of people are going to see this show and, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I refuse to judge it that way. And, uh, but in general, do you not judge it that way? Because past years, what matters is not the ratings up or down a few million, but whether the Grammy people and the acts are like, yeah, that was great. If they're happy, you're like, okay, we had a good show. Right. I will. I, there are times when you embrace great ratings, you love them. Sure. I just, but I don't think that this is not a time for that in TV. This At is, all. I think this is a, these are years for, I mean, listen, I, I think people should be, you know, just like the music industry, uh, you know, there's these, you know, the Recording Academy may, you know, the, the economic impact of not having an arena full of people who've paid to be there, there's a lot of impact on a lot of lives. And I think rather than people thinking in this period about ratings that way, I think the truth is you have these organizations that are trying to keep supporting music and keep, uh, 
you know, a lot of, we need, you know, and it's funny, I never was an award show fan. And, you know, when now it's so funny, like you introduced me, like doing an award show, like, and the truth is, I'm not offended by that. The truth is, I've, I've put two kids through college with a lot of help from award shows, but I write many kinds of shows. And like, I have a show on uh, Wednesday night, a Grammy salute. There's no awards. It's, uh, it's literally just music and a lot of speeches about the power of music to speak to uh, causes and political causes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hosted by common. It's a whole different thing. Oh, that could be good. Uh, I'm really, I think the shows that show is going to be really powerful. I, I, I mean, I listen, I, uh, I helped on the mass singer. I like ratings. I like shows to do well. <laughs> uh, that's one measure, but I feel proud when we look back and I feel proud of every Grammy show I've been a part of. I mean, I think we've, you know, uh, it's very funny when people talk about these shows, they always, there's almost no logic. It's, and as again, as a former journalist, I'm always like, I hope I wasn't as crazy as a lot of these people because they always talk about like this is like someone said this has been the best Grammys uh, in the since the golden era and I'm like what golden era are you talking about like because people hated it when it was like Toto winning everything and you know uh, I, I believe <laughs> just by pure coincidence I believe the golden era has been the exact twenty years that I've been doing the show. And no regrets for not inviting Harry and Meghan to give out an award because that seems to draw on the ratings. You're assuming. Uh, <laughs> you're assuming I we did. This. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you did. <laughs> well, no, that's one of the things that's also really crazy when people talk about these shows. It's like people go, "Well, I had a great idea, and you why didn't you have the Stones? You know, uh, uh, and it's Good like, idea. oh yeah, well, you know, you it's like should have reunited Led Zeppelin." Now, now, do you get do you get a royalty when the Oscar says we're going to go to rather than have celebrities present the awards, we're going to go to movie theater owners and here's a, a, an usher from Piscataway, New Jersey. For, and, that would and, be and Ben Winston, and they, and he won't get it either because <laughs> no, I listen. Uh, the show that put me in television, the reason I went from journalist Rolling Stone to uh, TV writer was really the tribute to heroes right around the same right. time. That I, was yeah. Terrific. And, and, and that was a temp every, after that, every cause had a telethon exactly based on that template. Like we, and it was the most like, uh, it, 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 it was the most spontaneous thing I've ever been a part of, including like the whole, like, uh, doing a, uh, a reaction to a tragedy with stars and uh, the the most the thing I have to share, which because it's so wild, is that uh, George Clooney was sort of around and helping Joel Gallen, who was the executive producer, and I was there, you know, sort of be the head writer. And George Clooney literally sat outside my office at CBS Television City on the floor, and one day, and he would run copy for me. Like he literally would take, I'd type something. This is like more when you'd print something and, you know, even I wasn't typing, but yeah, it was printing and handing it and they'd bring it to the script person down the hall. But one point I looked out and it was George Clooney and Brad Pitt sitting outside my office. Like, and Clooney went to Joel Gallen and I was there in the room and he goes like, Brad is hanging here. Uh, he would love to present, uh, you know, at the Tribute to Heroes. And Joel had to say, 
I'm sorry, like we're full because every, <laughs> it was on every network, right? And every network got to pull one of their talent, you know, on. So we were just full up. And so George Clooney said to Joel, why don't we do like a phone bank? So that is how, if you ever watched. I, I, I did. I've watched it at the time and I have that on DVD. Oh, no. Yeah. And that DVD, I, I got to pull it out. But when you look at that phone bank, I was the first person, I think, not in that phone bank to walk into that room because I was like running to get Clooney to tell him something or whatever and or pulling them to come give their like, speech when we were filming it. But I walked into that room and I was like, holy <laughs> it was like, and I believe that's one of the reasons we raised whatever it was, 270 million was that oh, yeah. picture of that room. And people were like, it was hysterical because you'd see like Sally Field answering the phone and saying, no, they want Jack Nicholson. So, you know, reaching out. <laughs> uh, it was, it was crazy. Uh, it was crazy. Well, you know, and by the way, the tribute to Heroes for those who don't know was, of course, the telethon after 9-11. That was the televised telethon, obviously. After 9-11. But, yes, uh, and Rolling Stone called me during it to cover it. And I said, well, I'm writing it, so I don't know if I should really review I it. I have to review my journalistic ethics, and I think, no, no, that's not appropriate. Yeah. No, that's not appropriate. <laughs> no, my, my, yeah, that was my conflict of interest yeah. era. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, last night's show, certainly, every year I feel like, how did they top themselves? Or am I just remembering it because it's so fresh, it feels like they topped themselves? Like, how do they do? And this year, I think everybody was just expecting it would be ho-hum because everything, it's going to be another Zoom award show. And it wasn't. And it surprised everybody. And that's why everybody's so, you know, glowing about the Grammys this year. But also, what my, you know, my kids now want my face mask to match my outfit for every single day. They're like, oh, look, T Taylor Swift's face. How come you don't have your, your face mask don't match your outfits? You, you work in this industry. I'm like, yeah, I'm not Taylor Swift or, or that Harry Styles. Style. Not only Taylor Swift, the woman from the hotel cafe, like she was coming back to rehearsal and she had this fantastic mask that was like uh, bedazzled. I thought like, wow, yeah. I, I have to step it up. I have like just the Dodger blue. I, <laughs> that's what I have. That's exactly what I have. Yeah. That's what I go for. <laughs> well, it's always great to speak with you. Normally we, we, we haven't been able to speak with you for the past couple of years because you go straight from the Grammys and because the Grammys attract all this musical talent, you, you go, you, you kind of stay inside show, yeah. the, you do a tribute show right after. So you never get a chance to talk to us. So I'm so glad we finally got to catch up with you after the Grammys. It's always great. Grammys. To speak oh no, I appreciate your asking. And the funny thing is we still are doing the tribute show and it's still airing Wednesday. It's just that we were, uh, that's this Wednesday, you know, it, it, but that's the sounds of change thing. And it's, we did it in a different way, but again, it was more work because we were filming in that case. That is all over the place. We were, you know, Nashville, and that has. Oh my God, uh, I can't even imagine. It has Chris cool. Stapleton, uh, cool. Eric Church, and Brad Paisley. It has Gladys Knight, who's my favorite singer on earth. It has. Um, my favorite singer. Andre, uh, Andre Day, uh, who just got an Oscar now. Billie Holiday. Yeah. Uh, it has Cynthia Revo. It has. Uh, it's John Fogarty who uh, asked me to come and interview him. You'll see there's a little uh, speaking part. And it's like, if you can get paid to go hang out with John Fogarty and hear him play Fortunate Son, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good day good. at work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that is a good day at work. But thank you again. I mean, I know you literally it happened less than 24 hours ago. So thank you so much for 
for telling us how you put it together. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. And, and uh, yeah, thank you for watching the Grammys. And yeah, I really, again, I do think if you haven't seen it, go back. Uh, I actually went on Paramount Plus, which I guess because I had CBS All Access, it's just on my, it seems to just be on my right, TV. Right. And I, that's, I was lost in, in watching the first, uh, watching Harry Styles' uh, uh, Watermelon Sugar. That's why I was late. I just was. That's a, that's a good reason. I hope he pays royalties to Mick Jagger. But thanks for joining us. Well, that was great of uh, David to join us. Uh, I cannot oh, I tell to- you how excited I was that he was able to do this. For years, I mean, I would say our first couple of years, like maybe the first five years, we talked to him every post-Grammy day. And then he got started doing all of these, you know, these uh, the tribute show one week later. Yeah. Yeah. And we just couldn't do it. And, and he, well, sorry, he couldn't do it. We were more than willing. Uh, but now I was so happy he was able to, to join us uh, because he always has such good insight into well, how he, that show is put he's, together. He's there. Of course he does. Uh, well, yeah. if, if, if he's still listening, I had one technical thing that I would, I would tweak that when they did the nominee intro music for the nominees, it was like this cello and it was just too mournful. It just kind of dragged things down every time they cut to it. It was the so, same. I was wondering if they could like change it. It, it was the only thing I, I kind of did notice. I was like, huh, I, I wonder why they didn't choose other music or maybe they, they, you know, didn't change it up between awards. That's right. The only thing I will say about all, all the stuff, there was a lot of diversity, a lot of women, of course. The country album nominations, the rock vocal dominated by women. Uh, Beyonce, of course, won 28 Grammys now. She is tied with Quincy Jones and trails only classical music artist Sir George Solti, who has 31. So she will ultimately become the most Grammy-winning person of all time. Taylor Swift is the first woman to win Album of the Year three times. Adele is the only other female artist to do it twice. And only Sinatra, Paul Simon, and Stevie Wonder have won Album of the Year three times, along with Taylor Swift. So that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, Five of the last six years, women have won Album of the Year. But as we talk about the Oscars earlier, I would say this one thing about this. Years ago, you would have categories like best female rock vocals, best male rock vocals, best female pop vocal, best female, best male country vocal, best best female. Right. The Oscars will survive going to just best lead and best supporting. You do not need to have to break them down by men and women. No other category does. Not writing, not directing, not cinematography, not producing, nothing. So why acting? There's there's no need to do it. There can be some negative follow-up, but there can be some positive ones too. Let, the, you know, let it be a top 10 of acting or who knows. But, you know, uh, how, you know I hope- how I knew that this was a good show last night? How- My kids sat through all three and a half hours. Oh, that is that is cool. I like and Trevor Noah. Oh God, he was really good. I I like Trevor Noah. So no, no, no. You know. I mean, I like I like Trevor Noah. Oh, well, okay. You mean like like? <laughs> <laughs> He's single, as far as I know. <laughs> I did but, like the fact that like he finally got out of the apartment for a year. We've only seen him in his apartment. Poor man. Yeah, no, I feel bad for him, and I feel bad for the people who died this week. Of course, though, some of them have had long and distinguished careers, like journalist Roger Mudd. He died at the age of ninety three. He was a stalwart journalist of the old school in the Walter Cronkite veins. For 30 years, from 1960 to 1990, he covered every political convention and presidential election. He interviewed Bobby Kennedy the night he was assassinated. He covered Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech on the wall, the Washington Mall. He won the Peabody Award in 1971 for a story called The Selling of the Pentagon 
about how the American people are convinced by the military industrial complex that we desperately need more guns, more planes and more bombs to be safe. You could run it again today and not change a word. Frankly, you know, when, was I, was, already, I, when uh, I watched Judas and the Black Messiah, Messiah, I thought the same thing. I thought, huh, so nothing's changed in, what is it, 50 years? That's just great. <laughs> he was already old school when I grew up in the 70s, when he was covering Watergate and the like. And he may have unintentionally derailed Ted Kennedy's presidential aspirations in 1979 by asking what is now known as the Roger Mudd question, Senator, why do you want to be president? And Ted Kennedy was like, uh... Blah, 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 blah. And he like had no answer. Uh, he himself shot for higher office and he wanted to be the evening news anchor. And when he lost out to Dan Rather, he moved to NBC. And he said, ultimately, that was a good thing because he did partner with Tom Brokaw on NBC, but he wasn't happy. He really wanted to be out in the field. That's where the fun is. So a great career. Well, also passing away this week was Puerto Rican actor Henry Darrow. And you might recall we were talking about George Sierra from the sitcom Barney Miller a couple weeks ago. Gregory, Gregory Sierra. Oh, sorry. What did I say? George? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I had George Sierra on the brain. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, guess what? Uh, Yeah. Gregory Sierra was a trailblazer of, of Puerto Rican descent. And people blazed a trail for him too, specifically actor Henry Darrow, among others. He was born in Puerto Rico and was the pride of the island as he went on to win an Emmy for his role on the soap opera Santa Barbara. But he's beloved forever among Latinos for his role on the 1960s drama The High Chaparral. That was a show where the Latino family had equal importance alongside a white family, which was obviously very unusual for primetime television. He played a charming son and gained worldwide fame. He was also the first Latino to play Zorro on television. Eh, And it wasn't easy because he lost out on an earlier rendition of Zorro by overacting. And one of his first movies was a role in a film written by Ed Wood. So, you know, it was a long, tough career, but he got there, made fame, uh, did bar, you know, he was 87 years old and had a long, distinguished career. So did children's author Norman Juster. He died at the age of 91. And of course, when someone is 91, you know, you can celebrate their life. You don't have to say it's sad, right? You know, it's not sad, is it? I mean, he was, he had acclaim, he had a long career, and it was capped by two books. Animation legend Chuck Jones, the director, turned both of those books into films. One was The Circle and the Dot which won the Oscar for Best Animated Short for 1965, based on a picture book done by Norman Juster. The other, even more popular novel, was The Phantom Tollbooth that was illustrated by Jules Pfeiffer, and it was turned into a not-very-good live-action animated hybrid by Chuck Jones and several other directors in 1970. It's currently in development for a remake. He lived long enough to see his books become bestsellers, and especially The Phantom Tollbooth become a beloved classic that never went out of print, He loved science and math and knew as well as anyone that to the vector goes the spoils. And because it's the Grammys, we should end on this guy, right? Yes. uh, You know, this was the one I, I, I was about to put this in and I went and went, I went to the bottom of our show notes and I could not believe he was already there. I was like, how does he beat me on this guy? Like Michael always beats me to putting in the obituaries (laughs) and I couldn't believe you beat me on Lou Ottens. And he is an engineer from the Netherlands who created the audio cassette. He worked That's for right. Philips and he did that in 1963 and he realized it was just cheaper and easier to, you know, it was a cheaper, easier alternative to like the eight track tape and all this expensive reel to reel stuff. Right. Eight track wasn't around yet, but the reel to reel machine, I don't think eight track was around, but it was really the reel to reel machine. They were nice audio quality, but they were not portable at all. So he led the team that helped create the audio cassette in 1963. It was a huge and immediate success. 
More than 100 billion copies of cassettes have been sold worldwide to date. They patented their audio cassette amidst a lot of competition. Other companies went to the trade show where they first showed it, and he said the Japanese were taking pictures. (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah. immediately there were there were copies out there and he lobbied his company Philips to license the format to everyone free of charge because there was no format war because they made it available to everyone that's why it was a winner for everyone LPs retained audio supremacy and then HRAC came along and they offered some mobile competition but cassettes were king because they were portable they were cheap and they were easy and you could record on them So they really revolutionized the consumer's control over music from taping songs and concerts off the radio to encouraging mixtapes. With cassettes, you could create a mixtape for a lover, share your favorite music with a friend, make a greatest hits tape of your own choosing for an artist, and much more. The playlists of today began right there. And that was a huge change. Before then, they just said, here's the music. Now you could say, I like this song and that song and the other song, and that was it. He also worked on the team that developed the compact disc. Neil Young or no Neil Young, he saw the CD uh, as terrific and making all other formats obsolete. CDs went on to sell some $200 billion, 200 billion copies worldwide. 200 billion CDs have been created. And he was wrong, though, uh, because the cassette tape was not obsolete. It has enjoyed a resurgence in recent years. His only regret was that Sony and not Philips developed the first portable cassette player with the Walkman. Well, our regret is that we can't spend more time with you. Uh, and you know what? I'd like to thank David Wilde for joining us. Uh, of course, where can you find David Wilde? We'll place links to all of his, uh, well, not his work, I guess. I guess we could uh, place a link to his muckrack profile or uh, certainly his Twitter account, because without a yeah. doubt, you should be following him on Twitter. And he should tell Brad Paisley to stop tweeting me. I signed up for Brad Paisley's tweets and the guy tweets like every day. He's like hungry for attention. It's like, Brad, calm down. I like you. <laughs> well, and we like you. We like you subscribing to us in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find our show. And you know what? It helps us out when you rate and review it in any one of those podcast aggregators, especially iTunes, I might add. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsendbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us and ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsendbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsendbox.com. Box.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Again, all of that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's nomadland.com. And that actually is, is a website, probably- but it's not connected to the movie. It's it's the website for Michael Hedges, whoever that is. <laughs> oh. God bless him. Yeah, well, you know what? If you oh, can't he's find a, he's, any- a, he's a he's a he's a musician. Oh, good, f- good for you, Michael Hedges. I bet the Nomadland movie people are like, "Damn!" <laughs> well, oh, well, if you- he died in 1997, God bless you. <laughs> Yet another obituary. You know, <laughs> uh, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on Nomadland.com, why not head on over to MichaelGiltz.com where all of his entertainment coverage is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, 
Play nice. 